0: Well, good morning. Delighted to be with you this morning. I've chosen the topic, Think Correctly About Money. And to talk about this, I want, to, I want you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. And we will look at the passage on the letter to the church at Laodicea. The letter to the church at Laodicea was the last of the seven epistles to the churches in Asia dictated by Jesus through his agent, the apostle John. The letters to the other seven other churches can be summarized as follows. Ephesus was the first letter. Ephesus was a church that lost its first love. Smyrna was a persecuted church. The third church, Pergamum, was a doctrinally unsound church. Thyatira was an immoral church. Sardis was a dead church. Philadelphia was a weak church. It was weakened because of persecution. And Laodicea, the seventh church, was a lukewarm, deceived church. For the persecuted churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia, they were admonished to trust in the faithfulness of God. For the other churches, the other five churches, they were admonished to repent, reject worldly thinking, and instead embrace Christian thinking. The final letter to the church at Laodicea is perhaps the closest comparison to the church today, a deceived church, and this deception is rooted in how they viewed money. Laodicea was located about 10 miles northwest of Colossae and about 13 miles south of Hierapolis. All three cities were destroyed by an earthquake between 60 and 64 AD. Therefore, the letter to the Laodiceans was prior to this date. Laodicea was founded between 261 and 253 BC by the king of Syria who named it after his wife. Laodicea means strong people, which implies they were probably very proud people. And as you see when we read the letter, they show a lot of pride, particularly in how they viewed money. Laodicea was a very wealthy region. It was on the trade route, and so perhaps it was the wealthiest in the area. The area was famous for the manufacture of clothing. It was a banking center, and it was a center of health care. They had a special powder there that they mixed with oil that they used for an eye So it's these three business activities that both made them wealthy and that Jesus will use to critique them for their wrong view of money. So I want to set up this teaching by showing you a little video clip So um, just sit back and watch this little clip. There's no, uh, no real music with it or no real audio with it. It's just a video, and you can see the video will tell the story that I want to communicate to you. Although this is a fictitious story, it's hopefully very humorous. Hopefully you found the humor in it. It illustrates, though, for all of us, how we view money. Money is pretty important to us. And when we have an opportunity to get it, we will probably jump after it. So consider a Christian community that had the wrong view of money, just like this man in the video clip, the church at Laodicea. As with most of us today, the Laodiceans viewed money as the metric of security Success, significance, and satisfaction. So let's consider the letter to the Laodicean Christians and see what we can learn about how to view money correctly and therefore how to correctly walk with God. Revelation chapter 3, verses verses 14 through 22. I'm going to read the whole text to you and then we're going to break it down into verses here. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched Pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches so starting going back to verse 14 the very first verse there let's break that down a little bit to the angel of the church and Laodicea write these are the words of the Amen the word Amen there means firm or trustworthy in other words you can rely on these words you because you can rely on the one speaking these words the faithful and true witness The faithful witness is the one who is faithful to the will of God to the end. The true witness is the authentic, the real witness. And the idea of witness here is one who's willing to die for the message that they claim to hold to. Jesus died as the example of what it was to be a real witness for the message of the gospel. Furthermore, he is the ruler of God's creation. Now, the word ruler was the word archae. That was the Greek word. And that word meant meant first in priority, first in importance, and first in sequence. So we have the word John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. You see, the starting point for all reality as we know it is God. There is nothing outside of God's purview and outside of His creative power. Nothing exists independent of God. Now that's a very important concept to be clear on because today the world is trying to assert that there are things outside of God. They call that secular. Secular is the assumption that things exist apart from God. For example, at the core of secular education is the presumption that knowledge exists independent of God. Scripture says there's no such thing as knowledge independent of God. All knowledge, true knowledge, genuine knowledge comes from God. The false knowledge of the world is not real knowledge. So only real knowledge comes from God. Well, that's the picture here. He's setting the stage as the RK, the starting point for all of reality, meaning there's nothing out there out apart from me, and if you want to think about reality correctly, you begin with my thoughts, what I have declared and decreed reality to be. He says in the next verse, I know your deeds. That word deed is the Greek word ergon. The Greek word ergon is a general word for work every kind of activity would have been an ergon. You work in the workplace, that's ergon. You work in the home, as a homemaker, that's ergon. You are a civil authority, authority figure, a governor, a police officer, a tax collector, you do ergon. Everyone, everywhere is in the work of doing ergon. So the word deeds is probably not a great translation in English. The idea here is every work activity is our ergon. That he notes that, I observe this, I know this, I I watch you, I listen to you, there's nothing you do that I don't know about. I fully know your work. And I know that you are neither cold nor hot. That's a very interesting expression there and it had a lot of meaning to them. We listened to it, and we don't know the context. So let me get the context here. You know, Laodicea was a city that didn't have natural water. So it needed water for both bathing purposes and medicinal purposes, and for drinking and cooking purposes. So if you're going to to drink the water, you would like the water to be nice, cool water. If you're going to bathe or do medicine with it, you want it to be hot. The idea of lukewarm water doesn't appeal for either of those functions. So the, the Laodiceans had to pipe water in. From Colossi, which was on a river, they piped in cold water. From Hierapolis, which was located up in the mountains and close to a hot spring, they piped in the hot water. But in both cases, the water traveled in the pipeline about 10 to 13 miles, which meant over that distance, it began to the cold water began to warm up, the hot water began to cool down. So they fully understood what it was to get the hot water and it's lukewarm, or get the cold water and it's lukewarm. And they knew that was not what they were looking for. So they, that imagery was very powerful to them. And what Jesus is saying to them is, you know that reality. If it's neither hot nor cold, but it's lukewarm, it's not good for what you're trying to do. I'm using, he's saying, I'm using that imagery to tell you about how I feel about you when your works don't reflect what I want them to reflect. I want them to reflect alignment with the will and ways of God because that's what Jesus was about. Jesus is the one that said, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only speak what I hear the Father saying. He was so tied to the Father, to the will and the ways of the Father, and how He lived while he was on this earth, and He's asking us, His disciples, to live like He lived. And the Laodiceans are not doing that. So what are they doing? What is it that they're doing that's causing them to live in this state of lukewarmness? Well, that takes us to the next verse this is the error of the laodiceans the error of the laodiceans is a very common error today that error is that if i have temporal wealth that is tangible wealth money gold and silver precious stones real estate um, assets like livestock back then or i have access to slaves to do the people power I know we don't have slaves today. and We don't do a lot with livestock. But back then they had a lot of things, tangible assets, that they valued. And it's not that there's not some importance to those things, but they need to be seen correctly. You need to recognize that tangible assets are temporal. Their, on, their only value is in this existence. When you die, those, whatever tangible assets you have do not go with you. That's what he's trying to get you to understand. You come into this world without anything, you will leave this world and take nothing with you in terms of tangible assets. So their problem here is they don't really get that. They think that tangible assets are the metric for security, for success, for significance, and for satisfaction. And so they're working like we do today working hard to make a bunch of money. In fact, we have in America, the the American dream, which is all about working as hard as you can, make as, as much money as you can, as fast as you can, so you can stop working and you can do what you wanna do, when you wanna do it, how you wanna do it. And that's touted as the American dream. All the financial services company play off of that to get people to invest with them. And that's the big deal. That is the wrong view of money. When you think of money or tangible resources, temporal wealth like that, you are deceived. You think those things will provide you security. You think if you have money, you have no problems. If you have a problem, hey, I can use my money and and buy the solution. You think money is the mark of success. You think money makes you significant. And money satisfies you. That is easy to think that. And Jesus is going to tell them, you are totally deceived. So listen to his words. He said, you say, you lay at the sea and say, I am rich. I have plenty. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. I've got it covered. If I have a problem, I've got the resources to cover it. And Jesus then says, but you do not realize Now, that's the same thing as saying you are deceived. You don't get it. You don't understand reality. You don't know what's really going on. You don't know what the ultimate end of reality is. We have to keep in mind that as Christians, our Christianity is not just a ticket out of hell, a fire insurance policy. That's what a lot of people think it is. And they think, once I have that, I can just go live the way I want to live. I'm sorry, that is not Christianity. Christianity is eternal life with the Father. And when you're granted that life, the only proper way to live is is to be a servant to the Father, to do the will and the ways of the Master, and to value what He values, to see reality as as He sees it, and to serve His purposes. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's helpful to remember that in becoming a Christian, it happens in three phases. Many of us think today becoming a Christian is an event. And they remember the moment that they supposedly made a decision for Christ, and they went forward, and they were baptized, and now they're a Christian. They think of it like that. That is not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is this. Salvation occurs in three tenses. There is a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. The past tense is regeneration. Jesus told Nicodemus, one of the great leaders of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in the first century, he said, You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're regenerated. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're regenerated. So that is the key. The starting point for the process of salvation is the sovereign work of God in regenerating you and now empowering you. And that empowerment now gives you the ability to express faith in Christ. You will never express faith in Christ, real faith, until you have been born again. And once you've been born again and you now begin to express faith in Christ, you have a responsibility. And that is now to surrender your will to do His will. So that's the present tense, sanctification. It's a process, a growing process, a process of increasingly becoming more and more Christ-like as you live. The true mark of a Christian is that that process is happening in you, that you are becoming more and more Christ-like as you're growing and maturing in Christ. Until the, the future tense is realized when you graduate or you go to be with the Lord, that is the glorification and the salvation process is completed in you. And so that's you need to understand that to get what he's trying to say here. Because money as a temporal tool only has value in the sanctification process. That's where it has value and we have to see it there. Whereas true wealth... True wealth transcends all three phases of the salvation process. So Jesus is going to unload on them because they have exalted temporal wealth. They're worshiping temporal wealth. They've become mammon worshipers. And Jesus said, you cannot worship God and money. It is impossible. It's not that you don't have permission. It's not possible to worship God and money. You have to make a choice. So he's saying to them, you must recognize what temporal wealth is. And right now you don't get it because you think like the world, even though you profess to be Christians. So he says, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, most of us in our polite Christian communities today would never go up to a wealthy person and tell them they're deceived and we certainly wouldn't go up and tell them we're deceived and tell them they're wretched, pitiful poor blind and naked we wouldn't do that kind of thing but jesus did jesus didn't have a problem laying out truth in front of anyone any place anytime it did not matter what level of income they might have so jesus has enough love for them that he's going to speak truth to them. So he uses five descriptions of their state, of their deceived state. Number one, the wretched state. The wretched state has to do with being conflicted. Paul used this idea of wretched in Romans chapter 7 when he's talking about the conflict between his fleshly nature, which is still with him after he came to Christ. It hasn't been totally eradicated. He's fully in Christ. He's fully born again. He's fully a child of God, but practically, he's not totally conformed. He's not totally sanctified yet. And that's the process of life now, is growing and maturing in Christ. And he's saying that you you don't understand. You are in this wretched state, this conflicted state. You're conflicted because you are trying to worship God in money, and you can't do it. It's impossible. He then says, You are poor. You are poor. You see, he's making this point that poverty is not what you think it is. Poverty is a state of being powerless. If you're powerless, you don't have the ability to solve problems. Really. You may think your money gives you ability to solve problems, but in the end it doesn't. The greatest question of all for everyone is, what is your solution to the question of death? If you don't have an answer for how to deal with that, you don't have any answers for anything because the ultimate end of every human being is death. Death is certain for every one of us barring the return of Christ. Do you have an answer for death? So he's saying that you are poor because you don't have an answer to death. And right before saying that, he told them they were pitiful. To be pitiful is to be a pitiful. That is, you're so pitiful that you should be pitied. Now, Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's talking about the importance of the resurrection. And he said the resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. If there is no resurrection, we're to be pitied more than any man because we put our hope in Christ. And Christ, if Christ did not rise from the dead, we have no hope. So that's the sense of that. But he's saying here that you, because of your bad thinking about money, are to be pitied because you are hopeless. You don't understand the real solution to the death problem. Christ is it. Christ defeated death through the resurrection. So your wrong view of money has misleading you. It's causing you to value things that are, should not be valued at the level you're valuing them. You need to learn to value true wealth. You're valuing temporal wealth, which only has value in this existence. True wealth transcends this existence. And he's going to tell them what true wealth is in just in the next verse. Then he goes on to say, you're blind. You're blind. Wow. It's really hard to look at wealthy people and say they're blind. You think, well, they... To be able to gain wealth, you've got to really be able to have great vision. You've got to be able to see things and make great choices. Well, that's what it looks like, but the reality is they can only see so far. They can only see in the tangible. They can't really see in the intangible. And finally, they're naked. Naked means that they are without any clothes to cover their shamefulness before God. This takes us back to Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing that happened to them is they're riddled with shame. They knew they were not acceptable with God. They knew they were not fit for His presence any longer. And so they immediately reacted like all of us would and tried to make themselves acceptable by making garments of fig leaves. So when God shows up for His daily communion with them, their daily walk, their daily time of fellowship, They know that they're not suitable for God's presence, so they hide. Now, deep down, they know that they can't hide from God. No one can hide from God because he sees everything, he knows everything. And so then God calls them to account. And their their next response is to blame. Adam doesn't just blame the woman. Adam blames God because he made the woman. And so that's the, the pattern of sin that's in all of us. And we deep down all know there's no way we can ever do enough good works to be acceptable with God. That is the sense of being totally depraved. That's what theologians mean when they use the word total depravity. It's a theological term to, to tell us that we can never do enough good works to be acceptable with God. So using this idea of nakedness here reminds us of this fallen state It reminds us that our temporal state is not our real state. We are called to live temporally, but we're called to live for God in that temporal state. But you're choosing to live temporally. You're not thinking about the will and ways of God. You're thinking about your will and your ways and your own glory. So that's where they're lost. They are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They are deceived in this state of lukewarmness. So what's, what's Jesus counsel them to do? Jesus is so kind here. He, uh, he counsels them. He doesn't command them immediately. He will command them in the next verse. But his first admonition will be to counsel them. Said, so given your wretched state, given your state of being wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. So there's a sense in which you can become rich, but it's not what you think. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. So he's going to use the three major industries of Laodicea that have made them temporally wealthy to now explain to them what true wealth is. True wealth is not measured in terms of, of dollars or pesos or pounds or ounces of gold or acres of real estate or or carats of diamonds. Those aren't the real metrics of wealth. So he says, I counseled you, buy me gold refined in the fire. Now, when I grew up, I grew up uh, in a home that, um, uh, where I, w- I worked with my dad from the earliest, earliest days. And my dad had a plumbing contracting business. And I remember when I was probably 12 years old, my dad took me down to his shop. In those days, which was back in the late 50s, early 60s, plumbers did what their name implied. Plumber means worker of lead. Plumbers today don't generally work with lead. But back then, they still did. So lead was a valued commodity. It was important that we use the lead wisely. So on every job where they used lead, they would have scrap. Well, the plumbers were instructed, bring the scrap lead into the shop, put it on the recycle table, and someone would then recycle it, and many times that someone was me. And so I had a pot there, and I would take the lead, which would usually be dirty because it had been on a job site, I would turn the fire on and melt the lead down, and the the impurities would rise to the top. I would take the ladle and I would scrape the impurities off, and then I had pure lead. Then I would take the ladle and I'd scrape the you know fill up the ladle with the lead, and I would put it in molds and let it cool down, and then now we have pure lead in in, in the shape was called a kind of a cornbread shape. And I could put that on the trucks, and they could go out to the job site, and now they had pure lead to work with. So that was a process of purifying the lead. Well, that's the imagery here. The imagery here of gold refined and fired is to get down to the pure gold. And he's saying, you buy that from me so you can be rich. Buying it from Jesus means that I am going to him to get this. I can't get this from someone else. I buy it by trading things that I have for something of more value. Anytime you make a transaction, in theory, you're taking something that you value less than the thing you're trying to acquire. If you're trying to buy food, the reason you're buying that food is you value the food more than the the wealth that you're giving to get that food. So that's the idea here. We want to go to Jesus and buy real gold, real wealth, wisdom, reputation, righteousness, discipleship. All these things, there's scores of things in Scripture that are noted as more valuable than gold or silver. So that's the first thing you do. If you want to counter this deceived state, you wealthy people, you have to learn to trade up. You've got to buy the real wealth. Use your temporal wealth to buy the, true, the real wealth. Then he says, buy for me also white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. In other words, white clothes here are an imagery of righteousness. When Adam and Eve sinned and tried to make those fig leaves for themselves total failure, At the end of Genesis 3, God, through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, clothed Adam and Eve with with wool from a sacrificed animal. So that's the picture. God clothed them. So now the clothing we have is through the sacrifice of Christ. It's the white clothing. White clothing speaks of righteousness. It speaks of acceptance with God It speaks of surrender to the will and the ways of God. And there are many examples in Scripture where white white clothes are used. White clothes were used when Jesus was transfigured. His clothes shined brighter than any other white clothes. The angel at the tomb where Jesus was resurrected was in white. The angels at the ascension of Jesus were in white. Jesus appeared to John in the book of Revelation with white hair and, and head like wool. So throughout scriptures, you find these references to white clothes as an imagery of purity and righteousness with God. So that's what we want to trade up to. We want to trade up to get the righteousness that comes from God. And finally, it says salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. You see, they were famous for that eye salve that they made out of a special material that they had in their area that they mixed with oil that was supposed to be an eye medicine. So using that imagery, he's saying, you need eye salves so you can see, so you can truly see. The challenge for most of us is we don't see clearly. We don't know how to see clearly. So all three of these imageries, whether it's the pure gold, the white clothes, the eye salve, all three of these are referring to the sanctification process of salvation. They're referring to purifying, growing and maturing, developing godly character. These are the real signs of wealth in people. Now, to do this, to be able to grow in your ability to be a servant of God, to walk with Him, to value what He values, you have to learn to think with metaphysical awareness. Metaphysical awareness refers to seeing from God's perspective. The word meta means beyond, and the word physical, it means beyond the tangible. So this is to see from God's perspective. So I have an imagery here of what I call the triangle of truth. And what you can do with this imagery is you can see how to see reality much better, how to see it more clearly. So, for example... You see at the bottom of the triangle, you've got you in the bottom left-hand corner. And then you go across, go horizontally. You see you are through your natural eyes and your natural senses. You're seeing, you're smelling, you're touching, you're feeling. You are investigating facts, things that happen. And you draw a conclusion about people and events by this investigation of the facts. The alternative way to see people and events is to take the facts about the situation up through God and gain His perspective. And when you get His perspective, you see those facts as truth. You see the truth about the people and events. So for example, let's just take the cross. Jesus died on the cross. You could see it, they experienced it, they saw it, it looked like it was a really bad thing. So from a natural perspective, It was just death, carnage. Now, if you take that fact, that same crucifixion, and look at it through God's perspective, you discover it's the greatest thing that ever happened because it was the basis for the salvation of mankind. It was truly the greatest gift that mankind could ever receive from God. So that shows you how you can take an event and you look at it properly, you see the truth. If you don't look at it properly, you don't really see the truth. You may see facts, but you don't know how to understand those facts. So that's metaphysical awareness. So you want real gold? You want white clothes? You want that righteous character? You want to truly be able to see? You need to be able to learn how to see through the triangle of truth. That's how you see reality correctly. Now let's conclude here, the last few verses here. Jesus finally is going to rebuke them. He gave them counsel, advice, now he's going to rebuke them. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. You see, the mark of a true son, according to Hebrews 12, is that they will be disciplined. If you're really a son of God, God will discipline you for the purpose of building you up strengthening you so that you grow strong spiritually. He puts you in the gym, the spiritual gym, so you can work out and grow up in Christ. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest, that is, be zealous and repent. Now, lukewarm people aren't zealous. Lukewarm people are just blah. Zeal requires passion. It requires energy. Lukewarm people don't have passion and energy. So he's mandating to them, be jealous or be earnest and repent. Repent means to change your thinking. You have wrong thinking. Metanoia is the Greek word. Meta means to go against the mind because your mind is programmed to think wrongly. So we need to change your thinking. So repent and begin to think correctly about true wealth. He says this, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. I remember hearing this verse many years ago for the first time when I was in college, and it was an evangelistic verse. And I didn't really know the context back then, but now I do, and I realize that this is Jesus talking to a group of professing Christians, part of a Christian community that are living in deception. He's telling them, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I I will come in and I will eat with him and he with me. He's talking about, I want to walk with you, but your deception is blocking us from communing together. We can't have fellowship together. We can't enjoy life together. I can't help you grow giving your state. So he's urging them. So this is part of the salvation process where we have some responsibility. When we're born again, we had nothing to do with it. It's the grace of God, it's a gift to be born again. You do nothing, earn it or deserve it, but once you've been born again, now you have a responsibility to respond to the revelation of Christ that you've been given. And one of the ways you do that is you have to think correctly about money. You have to know that money is not eternal wealth. Money is temporal wealth. The purpose of temporal wealth is only to help you align with God in this temporal life. Help you to do the will and the ways of God now. It's to help you to trade up for true wealth, righteousness, holy living, wisdom, you know, the ability to disciple others, the ability to grow up in Christ, the ability to walk in faith. These are real wealth, components of real wealth. These are far more important and far more valuable than anything that you could do temporally with money. So he's telling them, he's urging them. This is an urging here, step up. Step up, step into the yoke with me. Get under godly people who can help you grow and mature in Christ. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with him and he with me. Dinner was the most intimate meal of the day, the most important meal of the day in the first century. It was the meal where the family got together and talked about life. Jesus wants to meet us every day, just like he met Adam and Eve to talk about life. To him overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have in store for you The same destiny I had. When I ascended, I ascended at the right hand of the Father to be His ruling agent with Him. And you have a role to play, a place. This is the place I prepared for you. Come and rule with me. So it starts here and now. Ruling starts here and now in this existence by thinking correctly about money, by viewing money correctly, by using money correctly, by recognizing what real wealth is versus what temporal wealth is and recognizing I always want to trade temporal wealth for true wealth. I'm looking for acquiring things that have transcendent value. True wealth alone has transcendent value. He concludes, to him overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me. This is really, it's not give the right, I will grant to sit with me. Um, I think the translators of this NIV have been influenced by some worldly thinking here, uh, and they've used the term, give the right, because we're all about rights. But that's really not what the text says. It says, I will give or grant them to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, again, a reminder That the spirit can speak and you may not hear you see the laodiceans didn't hear they didn't see they didn't understand because they were blinded with the wrong view of money so let me give you a few takeaway thoughts money temporal wealth is not security success significance and our satisfaction temporal wealth is simply a tool to obey God. That's all it is. Do not make it more than what it is. If you make it more than what it is, you will live a deceived life. You will be lukewarm. The warning is when one views temporal wealth as security, success, significance, and or satisfaction, one will be lukewarm toward God. And Jesus makes it very clear. He hates lukewarm that is not satisfying. And the more scary aspect of that is if truly your works, your fruit, reveals who you are and your life does not reveal reveal fruit consistent with knowing Christ, how do you know that you really know Christ? Now that's scary. Now you need to be clear about the role of works in the salvation process. Works do not save anyone. The Old Testament testifies to that reality. Our works are not the basis of our salvation. Our works reveal whether or not we're saved. So let me say that again. Our works are not the basis of our salvation, but our works reveal whether or not we're saved. If you really know the Lord, it will show up in how you live. It will show up in how you view money and how you use money. Finally, trade up. Use temporal wealth to acquire true wealth. In other words, don't be focused on acquiring temporal wealth. Focus on growing in Christ, growing in righteousness, growing in your ability to see with metaphysical awareness, growing in your capacity as a disciple of Jesus to do His will His way in His timing for His glory. That's how you really grow up and you do the works that are pleasing to the Lord. And those works are rooted in gratitude because you know there's nothing you can do to merit eternal life. But as you obey God, you're saying thank you to Him that He's given you that eternal life. How you think about money, how you view money, how you value money is big. It will either block you in your walk with God, it will make you lukewarm, or it will be a, use, a tool that will be used of God to help you grow up and mature in Christ if you learn how to live aligned with Him according to His way, His will, His ways, His glory for His purposes. So may you have grace to learn to think about money correctly. Think about it as a temporal tool to enable you to do the will of God so that he may be glorified through you. May God grant you the grace to do that well. In Jesus' name, amen.